Um, so, my name is Rich, I'm on staff at ENC and I love it um, and I lead the worship team and 18 to 25 is with Emmy and it's loads of fun. Um, yeah, it's great. And carrying on our series on Isaiah, Visions of Glory, which makes me think of the Rugby World Cup, um, but it's also a great name for a series. Um, and strategically, I have chosen a much shorter chapter than Sam. Um, again, going back to teaching analogies, you give your gifted and talented kids the, the really tricky stuff, and then you give your less gifted and talented the, the slightly easier, slightly shorter. They can maybe hit their own work and kind of set their own target, you know, all that. So that's basically what I've done. Um, so yeah, anyone looking to be a teacher, that's how you do it. I mean, I, yeah, I don't know, I think that's how you do it. Um, so hopefully some of you have been reading ahead, no worries if you haven't. Um, we're going to get the passage read out to us in just a second. Oh, I think there might even be slides as well, actually. I mean, yeah, classic teacher, right? They're not very good slides, there's about three of them. Um, but, first of all, Karis is going to come and read it to us. Thank you very much. Karis. There you go. I think it's on. Hello? Oh, oh. nice. Okay. Yeah. Alright, cool. Um, Isaiah 50. Um, this is what the Lord says. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Because of your sins you were sold. Because of your transgressions your mother was sent away. When I came, why was there no one? When I called, why was there no one to answer? Was my arm too short to deliver you? Did I lack the strength to rescue you? By a mere rebuke I dry up the sea, I turn rivers into a desert, their fish rot for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with darkness and make sackcloth its covering. The Sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious, I have not turned away. I offer my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the Sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let the one who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. But now, all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go, walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set blaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down and talk. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you so much. Okay, so the passage is actually quite well sectioned for us into kind of three main sections, so I'm going to kind of go through them a bit like that. Um, first off, the, yeah, that would be brilliant, the Lord, the faithful husband. I'm actually using the titles that you see in the Passion Translation of the Bible. Um, I've read it in a couple of different translations and it's, it's just really nice to read different translations, not that they conflict with each other at all, but it can sometimes just help to shed light on it if you read it in slightly different wording. Um, so the first section, verses 1 to 3, is the Lord, the faithful husband, and it's kind of God setting, setting the misrepresentations that he suffers or is about to suffer um, at the hands of his people. He's kind of setting those things right, setting the record straight. 
Um, the next, verse 4 to 9, is kind of the servant, our teacher, and the servant surrendered to the cross. And this is a servant song. Sam spoke really well about servant songs last week. Basically, there's four, I think, in Isaiah. Sam's nodding me, this is great. Um, there's four in Isaiah which are specifically really clearly about Jesus. Um, and really clearly kind of just almost Isaiah going off on one about Jesus. And then you look forward to Jesus' life and it's so accurate to what Jesus went through. Um, so we've got servant song, it's speaking about Jesus prophetically from the first person. Um, this particular one gives us an account of the road to the cross and also the kind of the thoughts in Jesus' mind as he goes to and through this. And then finally, verses 10 and 11 is about the fear of God. And um, it's encouragement for some and it's warning for others. Um, and the spoiler alert is that if you are someone who loves God, then it is encouragement. Just, so that's good. We're on, we're on a good track here. Um, a little context um, for Isaiah and for this chapter, because otherwise it appears like it kind of almost jumps about a bit. And then, actually, I think again, Sam last week said about it's a bit like wading through treacle with Isaiah. It's good treacle, but there's so much there, and you have to really look into the background and work out what on earth he's saying half the time. It's beautiful poetry, but it's also so prophetic. Um, and actually, in my experience with prophets and prophetic people, that can often be the way, and it's an amazing thing. But um, when I've had prophecies, sometimes they come from people when I'm really not expecting them, or they've come out and I've been like, I don't know what you're talking about. And then over the years, they've kind of started to make sense, or something's come up, and I'm like, oh, okay, I get it now. Um, so what I would say with Isaiah is, do read it. When you're reading it, read it as if it was a prophet speaking, like, it is good stuff. You won't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily always seem to link to the bit before or whatever, but it is all really, really good stuff. So, Isaiah lived about 700 years before Jesus, and he prophesied during the time of four Judean kings. And so, Uzziah, also called Azariah for no apparent reason, was a good king. Jotham was a good king. Ahaz was a bad king. And then Hezekiah was a good king. So those four kings were the kings while Isaiah was prophesying. And Israel and Judah were split kingdoms by this stage. And so Judah was kind of based around Jerusalem, um, and Israel was based around Samaria, the city of Samaria in the north. Um, kind of simplistically put, um, going off on a bit of a tangent here, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, the allegiance between the tribes had never been that great anyway, and after Solomon they kind of split into Israel and Judah. Um, and then, actually, it's a really interesting thing in terms of the history of what Israel and Judah are like when Jesus comes on the scene. Um, Israel was overrun first, went into exile before Judah did, um, and kind of intermarried and generally um, wasn't quite as pure blood as the tribe of Judah. So when you get to Jesus in the New Testament and there's this real kind of hatred, the Jews have this real hatred for the Samaritans, and the Samaritans have this real hatred for the Jews. We've all probably heard the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's Jesus kind of being really controversial because actually by this stage, the Jews, i.e. Judah, um, really didn't get on with the Samaritans. And that was a big historical thing, um, right back from the time of the end of King Solomon's reign. Um, and yet, Jesus was a Jew, as we know. He, he was born into the tribe of Judah. Um, but through his teaching and his ministry, he then starts to reunite um, the Samaritans and the Jews under the banner of the church, which, yeah, which is incredible. Anyway, huge detour. Fascinating, love the history around it, um, love how Jesus 
comes on the scene and instead of bringing warfare and bringing battles, which is what a lot of people were hoping he would bring, instead he just brings people together by being the Prince of Peace and by doing loads of miracles and prophesying. Instead of everyone getting, getting arguing with each other, they're all just fascinated with him and how amazing he is. And honestly, it's really amazing we have a room full of people going out and prophesying and healing people on the streets because I think then we would, I think then people would forget a lot of the arguments that they have. I'm not in any way saying that all wars would stop straight away, but gosh, imagine if there was a bunch of missionaries kind of in kind of south, whatever it is, southwestern Russia or eastern Ukraine. Um, I've no idea fully what effect that would have, but I know that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and if he was doing his miracles there, I think. I think a lot of people would take their eyes onto him instead of the actual physical wars. So anyway, that's going ahead to Jesus, and Isaiah did that a lot. Um, but Isaiah was prophesying in Judah, and he was in, so around Jerusalem um, in the time of four kings. Three of them mostly good, not all good, but pretty much did a good job. One of them definitely didn't, um, and he could have been prophesying for around sixty-five years, so quite a long time and quite an experienced prophet. And he certainly saw um, the disobedience of Judah and of Israel, so he saw all of that. And even the good kings made quite a few mistakes and needed spiritual guidance and counsel. So, here we go, we're gonna get into Isaiah 50. It's 11 verses, um, pretty cool, but not too many of them. Verses one to three then. And do follow along in your Bibles if you've got them. That's, um, Definitely handy on your phone or whatever. So verse 1 to 3 is kind of God setting the misrepresentations that he suffers or is about to suffer at the hands of his people. He's setting them right. Um, and it says, Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your, transgress for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water. Gosh, it's quite a graphic image. And die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. So, Isaiah, as well as being 700 years before Jesus, he's about 100 years before Judah and Israel are exiled into Babylon. So not only is he prophesying about Jesus, he's also prophesying ahead to what the nation of Israel is going to be like when it's in exile. Um, and he is hearing these kind of rhetorical questions. So like, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? God's saying that because he's like, I don't owe anyone anything. Which of my creditors have I, have I sold you to? Of course I haven't. Basically, he's saying, the reason you guys are going into exile is because of your mistakes and because of all the stuff that you've done. But Israel, quite naturally, is kind of going, well, God, God's deserted us, God's, God's left us, that's why we're in exile, and God's saying, it's not because I've left you. It's because of your own sin, and your own things that you've done, um, that you've been... That, or that in this case, that they will be um, taken over by Babylon. Um, it's the persistent sin of Israel and not God's lack of loving kindness that causes them to be exiled. So, speaking of exiling people, 
when Josh, our, our Josh, this is Josh Kelly, little two-year-old Josh, when he decides to sit on Isla's head, Isla is our six-year-old daughter, when Josh decides he's going to sit on her head um, or accurately throw a, a large toy tractor across the room and hit Naomi on the foot, um, which, which apparently hurts quite a lot based on, based on the noises that come from Naomi afterwards. Um, there are consequences. Um, he goes into exile. He goes into timeout in his room. Uh, or, he, or he goes to the naughty step, which he sometimes stays on. Um, he's getting better at that. And of course, the hope is that he will learn we don't sit on people's heads um, unless playing rugby or something. Um, we certainly don't do it at home. And um, hopefully, over time, he will start to learn. Um, but him going into exile on the naughty step is very much not because we've stopped loving him, but it's because his actions require him to have that time out. They require him to go and learn what he has, what he, what he is not to do another time. Um, yeah, and we're not gonna, you know, we're not gonna just sell him because he's thrown a tractor at Naomi. Well, we might give him away for a couple of days, but we have him back. We have, we we have him back. That'd be fine. Um, so God is saying, like, I haven't sold you. I haven't divorced you guys. There's no divorce certificate. Um, he's got no creditors he needs to settle debts with, which is great. Great for our finances as well, by the way. If we're relying on God for our finances, which I think most of us are, this is just saying God's not in debt. In fact, he's got all the money, so it's good to know. Um, but, yeah, it's also an encouragement to Israel. However subtle, it's a real encouragement to them to never give up seeking the Lord, because he's basically saying, I haven't left you. He is saying they deserve the consequences of their sins, but he's also saying, I haven't left you. I will never leave you. Much like he said to Joshua um, in Deuteronomy 31, he says, God promises he will never leave or forsake him. And this passage is God again promising his people, I will not leave you. Call out to me and I will be there. Um, he's never left their side. And actually, um, he mourns with them. He's upset about them going into exile as well. It says in that, in verse 3, um, I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. Sackcloth is a sign of mourning. Um, and God is saying, I am mourning for the fact you're in exile as well. It upsets me too. Um, in verse 2, he's saying, I can even dry up. So verse 2, the bit about the, the fish and the, you know, on the, on the floor of the river, it's a bit random, but it's basically referring back to God saying, if I can dry up the Red Sea and if I can dry up the River Jordan, then I'm not going to leave you and I can get you out of exile if you ask. The bit about God mourning is also a really interesting one. According to Charles Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon's a very famous theologian with a great name, and he even compares it to heaven's sorrow at the crucifixion of Jesus when in verse 3 it says, I dress the heavens in black. And when Jesus died, it says, um, in all the Gospels, I think except for one, um, almost as a throwaway comment, um, it was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three, because the sun's light failed. This is when Jesus was crucified at the moment of his death. And it just kind of says that, and you can almost bypass it if, you, if you're not paying attention. But that's a big deal. I think even in the UK, if, if it was dark from 12 until three in the middle of the day, I think we'd be a bit like, what's going on? Um, in Israel, nice Mediterranean, sunny country, holiday destination, 
darkness between the hours of 12 and 3, you know, what is going on? And actually, there's a lot of people in the Gospels then says, it then says that they realised that something massive had happened, basically. Um, so this is referring forward to that, but it's also um, referring to the fact that God actually is mourning the fact that Israel has to go into exile. So God is saying through the prophet Isaiah, he loves his people deeply, he mourns with them, he'll never leave them, even when they make mistakes that need atoning for. Our atonement for our, no doubt, many and continued mistakes, I've certainly got them. Praise Jesus, it is Jesus. And we sometimes think that the New Testament is, is where the grace and love starts. Um, but Isaiah is very, very clear that this has always and will always be in the very nature of God, the grace and love of who he is. So following on from God confirming his love for his people, we hear another of these four servant songs that we get in Isaiah. Um, and it's, it's beautiful, but it's pretty painful. Um, verses four to nine. Um, it's an account, as I said earlier, Jesus is kind of, his road to the cross, that the torture that he suffers, the thoughts that are going through his mind. Um, and just before that, just at the very beginning, but just before he kind of starts talking about that, he says, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Um, and I love that. It's, it says, the, the tongue of those who are taught, the, the tongue of, the, of an, an intelligent and educated person, He's been given the tongue of an intelligent and educated person. Why? It's not to control people, it's not to knock people down, it's not to kind of just set them straight the whole time. It is, in the words here, to sustain with a word him who is weary. And I love that that is, that is the reason that God gives an educated and learned tongue. And that's a real ambition, I think, for us to be people that are so educated that we just are so good at building each other up. Um, a commentary that I read, I just like the wording of it, the guy basically said, what a glorious use of the tongue of the learned. And I just really liked that phrase. It's just an amazing way to, to use your words. Um, and actually words are incredibly powerful. God, I think Alice brought, Alice brought something about that as well in the worship. Um, God loves you and he'll never forsake you. And it's brought something really powerful on that about that actually if we see ourselves as God sees us, then we would hold our heads high. And, you know, we have bad weeks, bad months and all that sort of thing. So just remember, God loves you, he'll never forsake you, and receive that now if you're weary. And if you're not weary right now, save it up and say it to yourself when you are. Or if you are weary right now, say it to yourself right now and then save it up and say it again to yourself because it will build you up. So now we get to this foretelling of the brutal beating that Jesus receives. So it's verses 6. 6 in particular is about the, about the beating itself, but I'm going to read 6 to 9. It says, I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helped me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, 
and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near, who will contend with me? Let us stand up together, who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment, and the moth will eat them up. He willingly allowed his beard to be pulled out. I mean, that is going to be painful. He willingly allowed his back to be whipped and scourged. He willingly allowed himself to be spat on. And I know this is quite literally kind of the crux of our faith. I, I imagine a lot of us in here may well have watched The Passion of the Christ or whatever. We're all quite familiar with the fact that Jesus was tortured before he went to the cross and the cross itself was one of the worst forms of torture and the most torturous death you could have. But whenever you read it, I just feel like whenever you read it, it never, it never kind of, you never get used to hearing about that brutality and the fact that Jesus actually actively let himself go to that. But then it says he set his face like flint. And again, a passage from the Garden of Gethsemane, which is before Jesus died, um, when he says, not my will, but yours. If you can, Father God, please don't let me have to go to the cross. But if that's what it takes, then I will do it. He set his face like a flint. He says, not my will, but yours. And it says somewhere else in the Gospels that for the joy before him, he goes to the cross. For the joy set before him, Jesus went to the cross. And do you know I love that? It's okay. It's okay for joy to be a motivator for doing stuff that is hard. Doesn't mean that the stuff isn't hard. But it's okay to be motivated by the joy that you're going to get. And then finally, in 7 to 9, we have this real assuredness of his righteousness. He kind of knows he has not been disgraced. He will not be put to shame. No one can contend with him. No one can fight against him because he has done what God has asked him to do. And I truly believe that we can also walk in that knowledge of our own righteousness. Because of what Jesus did, we are righteous. Doesn't mean we don't make mistakes, but it's not who we are anymore. Who we are is righteous. So it means we can just combat the devil. Whenever the devil comes and says, you did this, you did that, you thought this, you thought that, we can say, you can't stand up to me because I am righteous in the way that Jesus does here. So, final couple of verses. Verses 10 to 11, um, and they're titled The Fear of God in the Passion Translation. Um, the Hebrew word for fear is yira, uh, Y-I-R-A-H. Um, I don't know that just off the top of my head. I, I looked it up, I'm not going to lie. Because I just thought, for me, the word fear, I kind of think, fear of God? Fear for me, like, conjures up images of me running away from, I don't know, someone trying to mug me or something. Um, but actually, when you look at the word yira, what it also translates to is awe and reverence and worship. And it's also strongly connected with trembling, apparently. Um, so when you come face to face with God um, through miracles or visions or just in, like we just have an amazing time of worship. When you have those times of worship where God just feels so close and you can just sense him in the room and, you know, maybe your knee starts to tremble or 
in my case, I just start to cry. It's just, just what I do when the Holy Spirit's around. Some people are handshake, some people fall over. But there's those moments when God just feels close and it's like the fear of the Lord is in the room. And it's not a, it's not a scared of God kind of fear, but it is a kind of a knowledge that God is not entirely safe, um, but it's good. It's really, really good. Um, and I, I just think, why do we, well, I mean, I don't actually love roller coasters that much. Some people love roller coasters. Why do we love roller coasters? As I say, I don't. Why do we love jumping off high things into water? I, I like that. Um, and there's that moment where you look over the top of the roller coaster, or look over the top of your kind of 30-foot jump or whatever, and you're thinking, this is terrifying, but it's also kind of exciting. Um, and that's kind of more, I think, the feeling of what the word fear means in this instance. Um, I actually, I nearly always get Narnia into my talks, and this one's going to be no different. Um, I, I love reading those. I read them like every year and just read them through. It's just so restful to read, so like wholesome and nourishing. But if you want to see a really good, a really good piece of writing on on how the fear of God looks, the Narnia books are fantastic. When you see how people relate to Aslan right through um, all seven of those books, you start to get an understanding of how good God is, but also, you know, quite unsafe. But that's a good thing. So it says, if you are someone who loves to fear the Lord, keep trusting him and he will show you the path of light. It says, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Um, and it's just saying, keep trusting him. It will come good in the end. He will show you the path of light. Even if you feel like you're in darkness, he will show you the path of light. And it's simple, and it's not easy, but it is simple. Um, just keep trusting in the Lord. And verse 11, as I said, I think verse 11 is, is a warning. I think for most of us here, we're in the verse 10 category. Verse 11 is saying, don't be tempted to be someone who does everything on your own and for your own glory, which, as I say, if you're here, I suspect you're in the verse 10 category of person rather than the verse 11. And that's Isaiah 50. It's a bit, a bit shorter than last week's, um, and it's a great starting point. I, there's no way that I've gone through every single possible thing that could come out of Isaiah 50, but it's a good starting point, hopefully. Um, and it is, it is like treacle, but it's like good treacle when you're reading Isaiah. So do go away and have a look at it again. Read it again. And, you know, nice thing, a great thing nowadays. Well, honestly, even 10 years ago, you have to have loads of commentaries open beside you. And I've got loads of old commentaries on the, on the shelves that kind of, everyone goes, have you read all those? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I've read them. Of course I haven't. But, you know, you refer through them, whereas nowadays you can sit there with your Bible and Google it. You can really, you can really kind of search through the scriptures so much more easily, which is amazing. Um, and also, Isaiah is, yeah, as you said, it, it sometimes feels like it's dotting around a bit, but... Again, it's incredibly powerful. I think we'll probably hear in the next few weeks about, um, in the New Testament, there's an Ethiopian who's traveling along a road reading from Isaiah. Um, and it is a combination of him reading from Isaiah and an apostle coming and helping him to understand it that is what brings him to the Lord. So the Old Testament has so much power and it all points to Jesus. 